Good morning. Christ is risen. It's good to be here. I love, I love being at Sanctuary. I, I don't always love going to church, but I, I usually love going to church here with you. The only drawback, of course, is that I'm often speaking when I'm here doing that. It's a drawback for you, but also for me, because I've got to hear myself too, not just you. Uh, it was, it's really good this time to get to, to be with Jonathan. The last few times I've been in, Jonathan has either purposely orchestrated so he would be away, or it just fell out that way. Um, Jonathan is dearest friend, and it's, it's really good anytime we can, we can have any, any time together to, to talk, which means we stayed up virtually all night talking. So if I seem grumpy today or, or off my game in some way, blame Jonathan for, for our conversation. Yes, that's, that's the theme, right? Just, just blame him. Um, that, that's, that's always a good way to get yourself out of trouble. But I, I think the, I, I, want, I wanted to acknowledge just how, how meaningful it is for me to be a part of this community. It's been a little over four years that I've been a part of this community. And that is, it's, yeah, it's a long, some of you are thinking, man, it feels like 12. <laughs> but it, it's, it's a remarkable community. And because of my place in it, because you know, I live in Tennessee and, and attend another church and speak in other churches, it gives me a chance to see what's happening here in the community, the changes that are taking place, the way what stays the same and what doesn't stay the same. And don't ever take for granted how special this community is and how, how much God is actually doing here in this community. And, and I, I love that so many of my friends get to be a part of that. So thank you. Thank you, Sanctuary, for the witness that you are. You know, Paul would often op- open his letters by talking about the ways in which the churches were exemplary, that the other churches celebrate you. Sanctuary is that kind of church, and I, I, I am... I'm proud to be part of the community and, and grateful for what God is, is doing among you. So what I want to do today is talk about conversion and, and how conversion takes place in our life. Many of you, like me, will, will have been taught to think of conversion as a one-time event, that you convert once. You're a non-believer and you become a believer, or you're a bad believer and you become a better one. But I, I think it's better to think of conversion not as a one-time event, but as, as many events, that the whole of the Christian life is a life of conversions, a life of deaths and resurrections, a life of exoduses and coming into your promised land experiences, and, and that your whole life is like that. And it's not as if you are converting over and over again because you're failing and going back to the beginning. It's not as if every time you fail, you just start again at zero or start again at Genesis. But it's that God is always taking you into deeper depths, and so even when you've, you've come all the way through and you feel like you've learned something during this season, then it, you begin again, not by going back to the very beginning, but by getting at a new beginning that is new and feels fresh and feels unfamiliar, and yet it's actually, you've moved along. One way of thinking about this is as an ascending spiral. You are moving, you're making progress, but in some ways it's circular because you're coming back to the place of newness, coming back to the place of disorientation, coming back to the place of uncertainty, and then you move through that season and you come to understand what the Lord was doing, and as soon as you think you understand, oh, I, now I know what the Lord was doing, it opens up again with, no, I don't. I, I didn't really understand anything. And that the whole of the life of, with God is this ascending spiral of conversion, of breaking before the Lord, allowing the Lord to make you, and then being broken again, and allowing the Lord to make you, and being broken again. Karl Barth said, One can never really be a Christian. One can only become a Christian over and over and over again. And I think that gets right at it. None of us just are Christians. 
We're, we're every day, God's mercies are new every morning as every day we try to remain open to what God is doing and become faithful, as faithful as we can be in this season in our life. George MacDonald, who was enormous influence on C.S. Lewis, some of you may have read him or heard of him, George MacDonald has this, this line that he often turns to in his sermons and in his writings in which he says, God is easy to please but hard to satisfy. God is easy to please but hard to satisfy. And you have to hear that the right way. You have to hear that not as threat but as promise. That God delights in you and there is nothing you can do that will change that delight. That that delight is the most basic fact of your existence. You know the most important things about us we didn't choose. We didn't choose to exist. We just do. We didn't choose who our parents were. We didn't choose where and when we were born. We didn't choose. The, the most basic truths about us just are given to us. But the most basic of all basic givens is that we are loved. That the one who brings us into being and holds us in being and calls us to fullness is the one who loves us, who calls us beloved. And whatever is taking place in our life is the, is the work of that love bringing its pressure onto us gently and lovingly so that we become holy as he is holy. And so there's no, there's no threat here. There's no threat to say that God is not satisfied. It just means that God's delight in you will not rest until it's brought you into the fullness of everything that's meant for you. God's going to delight in you no matter what you do. But because God is God, he's going to keep allowing that delight in you to move you along toward fullness, to move you along toward everything that's promised for you. And therefore, there's nothing to fear about this, this conversion. And, and, and if, any, if I feel confident in anything about what the Lord wants for me and for you in this time is that he wants us to greatly increase our awareness and our honesty with ourselves and one another about where we are in life but greatly lower our anxiety about that. That we need to be much readier to acknowledge where we actually are. This is what's going on in me. As best I can tell, this is what's happening. But there doesn't need to be fear with that because we are held. We are held. And conversion is taking place in that everlasting love of God. Now, with that in mind, I want to think about this season. This, this is, liturgically, we are in the season between Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and his ascension and Pentecost, his going to be with the Father and pouring out the Spirit upon us. And this is, I think, an enormously instructive time because it's a time of transition, a time of some loss and new gain, a time of death and resurrection. That these, these stories we have in the Gospels of the apostles encountering Jesus after he's resurrected, but before Pentecost, says something about, I think, that base, the basic shape of how conversion takes place in our life, which is letting go of what we thought we knew about the Lord and coming to understand what he's actually doing and who he actually is. And that that process can, continues throughout our life until the end. This process of, of letting go of expectations and desires and embracing what's coming, what he, what he means for us to have. And that this, this works its way through our lives again, at every level throughout our lives. So much so that I think the stories that the Gospels give us, all four Gospels give us stories about the apostles encountering Jesus after his resurrection before Pentecost. And I think those stories work as parables for us. This is what conversion looks like. If you want to know what God is doing in your life and how you're supposed to open yourself up to it, read these stories about the apostles encountering Jesus after resurrection and start to recognize your own story and their story. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to look at two passages. One in John 20, the story of Thomas, 
and Mary Magdalene, and then Luke 24, the story of Peter and the other disciples. So let's, let's jump to John 20. What you're going to see in both of these passages are three themes, three interrelated themes. One is the theme of absence and presence, and you're going to see the ways in which we don't quite understand what those terms mean after Easter. What does it mean for Jesus to be absent? What does it mean for him to be present? You're going to see the theme of understanding and faith, the way in which faith is only made possible as understanding is lost, and then faith comes and understanding, new understanding comes with it. And then the theme of revelation, epiphany, coming to recognize, immediately translating into vocation, into turning to ministry on behalf of this one who's, who's shown himself to you. So all these themes are going to be in all of these texts. We're just going to look at two this morning. John 20 will be the first one. This is the story of Thomas. So let's read John 20, 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Now, in in John 20, we've just read the story of Mary Magdalene, who's the first one to the tomb on the day of resurrection. She's the first one to realize the tomb is empty. She has a vision of Jesus but doesn't realize who he is. And according to John 20, when when Jesus speaks her name, Mary, and she recognizes he's not the gardener, this is Jesus, she falls at his feet and clings to him. She wraps her arms around him. And then Jesus says something very strange. He says, do not hold on to me. I must ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Go and tell your brothers and sisters that I'm risen. And here's the way in which I think that her story speaks to us. She came to the tomb looking for the Jesus she knew. And when the Jesus that is appeared to her, she didn't recognize him. Because she wasn't in love with Jesus as he is. She was in love with Jesus as she had known him. And that's why she's clinging to him. Jesus, be the Jesus I've known. Be the Jesus I've come to depend upon. Be the Jesus I have feelings for. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to be the Jesus you need me to be, not the Jesus you want me to be. And this is the heart of conversion. Am I willing to let Jesus be who he is, or am I going to insist that he he is who I want him to be? This is the taproot of conversion. Because all of us who've lived with God at any length of time at all have come to know God in a particular way. And the temptation will be to fixate on what we've come to experience about God as the whole truth about God. And like Mary, we can fall in love with what we've known about God and want that even when he's trying to show us something more than that. Am I willing to let God be God to me or am I going to insist God be the God I want, the God I've known, the God I'm comfortable with, the God I desire? And so... He sends Mary away. And then we get to the story of of Thomas, who wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. And 
The disciples want to tell Thomas about the good news, but he's having none of it. You can say that if you want, but I'm not going to believe until it's happened to me. And then suddenly Jesus does appear to all of them and says, peace. And then Thomas, come here. If you need to see, come and see. Come and touch these wounds. But then, and there's no rebuke. Contrary to the way we often tell the story, Jesus does not shame Thomas at all for that. There's no rebuke. There's no undercutting of Thomas. It's just simply, you need to see? See. You need to touch? Touch. But then Jesus does say, there's something better. You've seen and you've touched and you've believed, but there's something better for you than seeing and touching. You wanted a certain kind of presence, but there's something better than that kind of presence. There's another kind of presence that you might experience as absence, but it's actually more intimate presence than you can even know to appreciate. There's something better. And then this is why the gospel immediately goes on to say, these things, these stories have been written so that you might believe because the basic Christian conviction is that it's better to have the witness of the apostles than it is to have their experience of Jesus' body after the resurrection. Now let that scandalize you for a moment. That the gospel is the gospel because we believe it's better to have the witness of men and women than to have to put our fingers in the wounds of Jesus ourselves. Why? Because the kind of presence he wants to give us is we're, we're opened to it by our willingness to listen to the witness of others. And the problem with Thomas's experience, there's nothing, there's nothing shameful about it, there's nothing wrong with it. The limitation on Thomas's kind of experience is it makes Jesus just another presence in the world. And what he wants to be is closer to you than that. Through Ascension and Pentecost, Jesus becomes not just another person in the room. He becomes the room in which we exist. He makes a home in us and makes a home in the Father for us. Thomas just has Jesus as another person in the room. I have Jesus as my own life. Jesus is not in my life. Jesus is my life. And that's much, much better news. But some of us, especially those of us who've been nurtured in the church, we come to get attached to God as another person in our life. And God is that person in our life who's our resource to make our life go the way we want it to go. God's the one we go to when things go wrong to make things go right again. So we're sick, God's the healer. We're broke, God's the provider. We're, we're lonely, God's the, God's the matchmaker. Right? We're wronged, God is the judge. When someone's wronged us. Now, when we've wronged others, God is the forgiver. <laughs> but, but, hear, but hear me. That's lesser than what he means for you. He wants something more than to be another person in your life. He doesn't want to be the top of your list. Just one more thing, even if it's the most important thing. He wants to be everything, but in a way that doesn't crowd out anything. He wants to be your life in such a way that everything you do, every breath you breathe, every move you make, you make in him. And as his body, as his presence in the world. But you have to be willing to let go of the desire to have him as another person in your life in order for him to become your life. And this, this is what becomes difficult for us, especially those of us who, who feel like we have a good, quote unquote, relationship with God. I want you to imagine the iceberg. You're, you're, you see the tip of the iceberg. And most of us, I think, are tempted at least to think that's all there is to our relationship with God. 
But the truth is, most of what God is doing in your life is below the water level in darkness, and you have no idea about it, and you may never have any idea about it. You're only experiencing the tip of the iceberg, and that can be wonderful, but it's nothing compared to what he is actually doing in the depths of you. And sometimes you may not even recognize that at all. Sometimes you may recognize it years later and maybe just catch a glimpse of it. But here's, here's the good news. He's doing much more than you realize. So don't fret about what you feel like is not happening. You don't know what's happening. Think of it like this. My kids have no idea the best gifts that I give them and their mother gives them. My kids love when we bring them toys or take them out to get snow cones or ice cream. And they say, you're such a good dad. Well, I just like ice cream and thought this would be a good excuse to take you along. <laughs> but of course, the best gifts that we give them, that Julie and I give them, they have no idea about. And if they did know, they wouldn't be children anymore. I mean, imagine if my seven-year-old son came to me and said, Dad, I'm so glad that you don't beat Mom. Well, it's good that I don't, right? And she rarely beats me. I mean, it's, it's good <laughs> that... That our relationship works like this. But if he were sensitive to that, he wouldn't be a seven-year-old anymore. But then there comes a time when we're not seven years old anymore, and we need to recognize the deeper things that God is doing. I can't talk about this without crying, but just yesterday I got a text from my daughter who's 11, and she said, Dad, can I tell you something sweet about you? Hit me, yes, please, tell me. And she said, I love that you're so humble that when people brag about you, you immediately talk about their good gifts. Now, let's forget the fact that she's wrong about all that. But what I love, what I love about what she's doing, right, is it shows she's maturing. Because here's the thing. What we celebrate about God reveals our own character as it's developing. She couldn't have said that when she was seven. But now that she's 11 and she knows that people say nice things about her and what comes out of her is to turn to celebrate their goodness, she realizes, hey, that's what dad does. So what we're celebrating about what God's doing in our life says a whole lot more about us than it says about God. It says a whole lot more about where we are than about what God is because God is everything to us. So if I'm just praising him for the tip of the iceberg, I don't realize all the things that he's doing. And conversion happens when I'm willing to say, what if there's more than what I'm experiencing? And what if I'm, I'm trying to make God act in ways that actually are much less than what he means for us? This, this is the underside of those promises, like eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it's never entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for us. That's beautiful and wonderful, but it also means you're never going to really understand what God is doing. Because you, you can't anticipate, it's too good for you to know. Or Paul's God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Well, that means that what you're praying for is much less than what God is actually doing. Whatever you're asking God to do is nothing compared to what he's actually already doing. And, and this kind of openness to what if the goodness of God really is infinitely better than anything I could dare to imagine. But the temptation is to insist I don't want the better. I want what I want. Think about the, the three apostles, Peter, James, and John. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the story? And Jesus is there, and suddenly Moses and Elijah appear. And what does Peter, the mouthy one, what does he say? Let's build three tabernacles. Let's stay here. You realize what's happening with Peter. He's like, Jesus has made the big time. My master is now equal with Moses and Elijah. 
Let's, let's celebrate. This is as good as it gets. Jesus is now one of the prophets like Moses and Elijah. And then the gospel says he did not know what he was saying. Because you don't build three tabernacles to celebrate the fact that Jesus has finally arrived at the level of Moses and Elijah. That's not what's going on here. Moses and Elijah belong with you as witnesses to this one who is God made like us. But so many times I think we're wanting to build three tabernacles and celebrate something God's doing in our life. And God is saying, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. What I'm doing is infinitely, abundantly, exceedingly beyond anything that you know to praise for. And conversion happens when I'm willing to open myself to that possibility. And that's what this story about Thomas is about. And then the story of Peter from Luke 24. And I do have to hurry. Luke 24, this is Luke's version of the same set of events. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men appeared in dazzling clothes and stood beside them. The women were terrified. They're perplexed and terrified. Now, we love to tell the Easter story as if it's all light and happiness and laughter. But that's not what Easter was. It's not as if people come to the tomb, the apostles and the women come to the tomb and see it empty and immediately break into song and dance and speak in tongues and fall out in the spirit. What they do is say, what's going on? Where's the body? And then angels appear and they don't say, oh, angels. They say, this is terrifying. Who are these people? What's happening? And they're, they're terrified. They bow their faces to the ground. They fall as if dead. And the angels say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Oh, I don't know. Because he was dead a couple of days ago. Right? I mean, I'm, I had reasonable expectation. We put his body in this tomb. We went away, and now we're coming back, and we, we expect the body to be in the tomb. He is here, they say. He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And we read these stories and we think, oh, how foolish they were. He told them plainly. No, we're those people. There are all these things he said to us plainly that we don't hear. He keeps saying them over and over and over again, but we don't hear them. This is the most obvious one. Do not be afraid. Take no thought for tomorrow. He's pretty plain. You don't need to fear and you don't need to worry about tomorrow. But do you think that keeps me from being afraid and worrying about tomorrow? And it doesn't keep you from it either, no matter what you're telling yourself. You're afraid and you're worried about tomorrow. But he's plainly said, don't fear, don't worry about tomorrow. And so the angels say to these women, didn't you listen? He said this was going to happen. He's going to die. Three days later, he's going to be raised. He's going to meet you in Galilee. Then they remembered his words. And they come running back to the apostles, to the eleven and all the rest. Mary Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them. And in verse 11, but these words, the words of all these women who've been to the tomb and seen the angels, these words seem to them an idle tale. And this is, in, in the ancient world, a technical term for delirium. They seemed like they were mad. Crazy. Now, here are the 11. They're 
gathered for fear, gathered in sorrow, and women come rushing in, a whole passel of women come rushing in saying, we've been to the tomb, he's not there, angels appeared and said he's risen just like he said he was going to be, and the apostles don't say, glory, they say, shut up, you're crazy, that doesn't happen, you're lunatics. I love this about the story, because this is actually how it works in our real lives if we're honest. And if it doesn't work like this in our lives, it's because we're being dishonest. Because the truth is, when we talk about the gospel, we are claiming something that does run counter to all of our common sense and experience of the world. And our response sometimes should be, that's crazy talk. Jesus, when you tell me to forgive 70 times 7, that's crazy talk. I might forgive once or twice, but if somebody keeps wronging me past three and four forgivenesses, I don't think I'm going to make it all the way to 70 times 7. That's crazy talk. Love my enemies? That's crazy. Pray for those who abuse you? That's crazy talk, unless Jesus is risen. But if you don't recognize the ways in which it's crazy talk, then you don't yet understand what we're claiming. There's this wonderful story Jesus tells, a parable of two brothers. The father comes to them and says to them both, go and work in the field. And the first one says, yes, dad, I will do that today. I love honoring you. And the other one says, dad, shut up. I've got stuff to do. That's paraphrase. That's not exactly. That's, that's the message translation. <laughs> Eugene Peterson has cleared the way for us to, to talk that way. But, but you know how the story goes? The first one, the one who said he would go, did not go. And the one who said he wouldn't go, did go. Because the sign of genuine faith, not naivete, not pretended faith, but genuine faith, is you start to recognize what God is asking of you, and you realize it's crazy. That's crazy. Why would I do that? Why would I forgive someone who's continually wronging me? Why would I love my enemies? Why would I open myself in those ways to be vulnerable to those who've already shown they're willing to hurt me? Only if Jesus is risen is that sensible at all. So their response, I think, is an honest one. It's a human one. This is crazy. But I love what happens next. The women don't say, they don't defend themselves. They don't say, but we saw angels. They don't say anything. They just let their testimony resonate. They just let it stand. They're not, af- they're not afraid of the response of that it was crazy. They just let it stand. And then we're told this, verse 12, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He got up and ran to the tomb. I love this. I mean, I, I, can, I can feel this happening. Peter's in the room and he's shaking his head thinking, oh, Mary, I knew you were weird. I didn't know you were this weird. But then somewhere like deep, deep, deep in him, he thinks, but what, what if? I mean, I know these things don't happen. I know, I know that's, that's too good to be true, but what could it hurt? What if? And he sneaks out and runs to the tomb. And he gets there, and the text says he stooped and looked in. I love the, the phrasing. He stooped. And looked in. He made himself small. He knelt and looked in. Because conversion, deep conversion, is never going to happen until I'm willing to ask, what if? And then make myself small and look into the emptiness with that question in my heart. To just look into the darkness, 
looking to the, the tomb where he's, he's not seeing Jesus and he's not seeing angels. All he sees is an empty tomb and some linen cloths laid out. But he's got a question in him. What if there's something to this? And some of you, are, you're at that place. Some of you are at the, this is crazy talk, and that's fine. Some of you are at the place where there's, there's a haunting question in your gut saying, what if this is true, though? Just make yourself small and keep looking. Just keep peering in. And then notice, now, again, we tend to think that conversions happen quickly. You know, we're, we're people who think, listen, I know you're, you're broken and shattered, but come forward. Pastor Jonathan will pray for you, lay hands on you. You can leave here today, and you'll be completely changed. No, that's, I mean, not to undercut Pastor Jonathan's anointing, but that's not, that's not how it works. Peter comes to the tomb, he's intrigued, he stoops, he looks in, and then the text says he went home. And he was amazed. He's dumbfounded. I don't know what's going on. Something's happened, I don't understand it. And he just lives in that angst. And then Luke leaves the story of Peter and comes to the story of the Emmaus too. And I'm, I'm almost done. These two disciples, Cleopas and probably his wife, we don't know for sure who the other disciple was, but Cleopas and one other disciple, they're headed home to Emmaus from Jerusalem on Easter. And Jesus appears to them, but as a stranger. They don't recognize him. And Jesus says, what are you doing? And they were like, are you the only fool who doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem? Now, one of the things I love about the story is that in a technical sense, they're on the wrong road. I mean, they're heading away from where Everything is taking place. And you know that, that old saying that evangelicals would often use to say, not all roads lead to Jesus. There's only one way to God. And that's true. There is only one way to God. But the good news is that one way can find you on any road you're on. Amen. So this morning, whether you're running away from God or running toward him, it doesn't really matter. Jesus is persistent. And he keeps showing up. And he shows up on their road as a stranger. They don't recognize him. He asks them the, these questions. And then, as Jesus often does, he rudely rebukes them for not understanding. He says... Are you so foolish? Are you so stubborn and hard-hearted that you don't understand what the scriptures say about what has to happen? And they say, well, I guess. I don't know. They're not convinced. Because even when Jesus is teaching you the scripture, until your eyes are open, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so they're walking along, and it gets dark, and they say, well, we're going to have to stop here. And he said, well, I'm going to go on. And they, you know, the text says he pretended as if he were going to go on. And they're, they're hospitable. And they just say, no, 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 no. We don't really like you that much. We don't know what's going on with you. But hey, come in. Sometimes hospitality is all we've got that's saving us, right? And they bring him in. And again, rudely, Jesus immediately makes himself the host as, as the guest in the house. He takes over the meal. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And you know what happens. As soon as he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and he vanishes from their sight. Now notice what's taking place here. He's present to them one way, but they can't recognize him. As soon as they recognize him, he's not present to them in that way anymore. Just like we saw with Thomas, just like we saw with Mary Magdalene, the way he was present isn't the way he is present now, because the way he's present now is better than the way he was present then. And here's how this matters for your life. God has been present to you in all kinds of ways. The good news is he's going to be present to you in new and better, deeper ways if you will let him be. If you'll recognize it, if you'll accept it as the gift that it is, instead of asking God to be what he's been, let him be who he is. Amen. We don't need him to do something he's already done again. We need him to be who he is, and we need to be open to that. And then, I love this part of the story too, they're ecstatic. 
we've seen Jesus. And they run. It's about seven miles or so from Emmaus to Jerusalem. They run back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night so they can tell the other disciples, Jesus is risen. And this is just like God. You think you're bringing news. You think something's happened you're going to tell other people about. They show up, and this is what they, what they find. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together, and they were saying, the eleven and their companions, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now notice, we don't get that in the text. The last time we saw Peter, he was on his way home befuddled, amazed, dumbfounded. But somewhere, hidden away from anybody's view, Jesus appears to Simon. At the same time that he's appearing to these two on their way to Emmaus. Because the way he's present now isn't like how he was present before. And here's, here's the takeaway for us. Sometimes we get revelations like the women. We come to the tomb and there's some dazzling revelation. Angels in light saying, he is risen. Remember what he said. And sometimes all we get is an empty tomb to, befuddle our, to be befuddled by. And sometimes the revelation happens in ways we cannot even tell the story about. Just somehow it happens. Simon has seen the Lord. We don't know how he saw him. We don't know when he saw him. We have no idea. It's not a story we can tell. It's just he saw the Lord. And this is the way God wants to be present to us. This is how God wants to share himself with us. And then they're all talking. They're collaborating. I'm almost done. Two minutes. You can stand if you want. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. But go ahead and stand. You, you have to. No, I'm just kidding. They're all collaborating with one another about what's happened. This is what we saw. This is what we saw. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. And he appears to all of them at once. Now, you know his first word to them? Peace. Peace. You remember? That's the first word he said when he showed up to see Thomas. Why? Why peace? Because the Lord understands that we're converting. We're transitioning from what we thought we've known to what he wants us to know. And you don't need to fear that. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I know enough about my own life and enough about what it means to be a Christian and be around church and in church to know that when you feel like you're losing touch with something that was once precious to you, when you feel like your expectations have been crushed, it is easy to start to be afraid that you've not lost expectations, you've lost faith itself. And some of us, I think, the, the moment we start to feel that, that doubt gnawing at us, that question gnawing at us, we feel like we've lost something we shouldn't have lost. And I'm here to tell you, there is nothing to fear. Because he's not in your life as Lord because of the strength of your faith. He's in your life as Lord because of who he is. And there is nothing you're going to do that's going to keep him from being that way in your life. Now, if you resist it, that'll play out in one way. If you yield to it, it'll play out in another way. But what you're not going to do is make him less than who he is. You can be at peace. And if right now what's in your heart is, this is craziness, fine. If right now what's in your heart is, what if? I just want to peer for a little while, fine. If what's in your heart is God is good and I want to celebrate it, fine. But whoever you are and wherever you are, be at peace. You are held. Underneath it all are the everlasting arms of the God who gave us being and holds us in being. 
And we can experience whatever comes to us knowing he is better than I've imagined. Whatever I imagine God to be, he's better than that. And what's happening in my life right now is not telling the truth about who I am and about who God is. I can't read the surface of my life and know what's really going on. Because hiddenly, in ways that maybe can't even be told, he's appearing to you. He's working on you. He's doing good in you. And when he's done, then we'll all see. This is the God we're serving. Let me pray for you, then Jonathan will come. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing for us and in us. God, give us peace. Help us to settle into the work you're doing in our lives and to not be afraid. We can be where we are. We can be truthful and honest about where we are knowing that you hold us in and through all of it. Help us as we convert, as we become more like you, to accept what you mean to be to us rather than insisting that you be what we've known you to be. And we'll give you the thanks, God, even for that faith and the courage to receive that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.